morning. I think the cold weather has affected my voice a little bit. Andy Matoke, who is really leading the church plant there in Karen, Kenya, is a dear friend. He came down to Kitwe, Zambia to study uh, where we served for several years. And a lot of times when we would have Andy over for dinner, he would talk about um, his singleness, that he was in his 30s and he didn't know who the Lord had set aside for him. And see, the same, the same burdens that our, our Kenyans and our Zambian young people have are shared cross-culturally, aren't they? And we encouraged him and we prayed with him and we told him to just continue to faithfully serve the Lord in his singleness. Perhaps that's what God had for him for the rest of his life. Maybe not. Uh, but since we have left Zambia, the Lord provided for Andy a dear, God-fearing, God-loving wife. And now they're leading that team out in Karen together. So what a, what a great testimony to see him faithfully serving. Uh, he had gone to Mombasa and then came back. So trust the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. And great to see um, that that trust in God being rewarded um, just works throughout the world. And then the Simeon Trust Fund that was mentioned, I believe, Kristen, your uncle is a lead part of that. So it's just neat to see how all these things crisscross. And folks, sometimes it seems like the church is ineffective or it's not growing or we seem to be going backwards. And that is not the case. God's church is moving forward. It is having an influence throughout the world. And yes, sometimes God is pruning and refining and minimizing so that it can be more effective. And what a joy to see that happening. Please open your scriptures with me to Revelation chapter 11. We're going to look at the final six verses where the seventh trumpet is blown, also called the third woe. We sang a lot about glorifying God this morning. We will glorify. Um, all glory be forever. What is glory? So from a human level, from a human understanding, we'll see a little bit of that this afternoon. Some of us will. Some of us will choose not to. And uh, stadiums will fill and televisions will be tuned in and teams will rush out of the tunnel and fans will go wild. And for particular players, they'll even go more wild. And they stand and the, the noise volume just breaks through. That's glory. You're attributing worth to something. There's something about the whole atmosphere where you are ascribing worth or value to this particular thing. And on a human level, you can feel it. It's not neutral. And at the end of the day, one of those teams will raise a trophy and their fan base will go wild. There's nothing complacent about it. It involves everything within them at the moment. They have, they have paid money on jerseys and they will pay money on food and they will hazard traffic that they would never hazard to go to church. Even if it snows, they will be there to cheer their team on. That's, that's glory. 
We're going to get a glimpse of glory in Revelation 11, verses 14 to 19, where the kingdom belongs to God. Now, I'm going to reference a current event this morning, and I've taken great care to substitute words, knowing that we have young children with us. So I will be careful, but I'm using this because I believe there's an important aspect in the text uh, that this will help highlight. Sixteen years after Larry Nasser first criminally assaulted Rachel Den Hollander, she decided to publicly reveal that she had been one of the many victims of the USA gymnastics team doctor. Many of you have followed this. The former gymnast, now a lawyer and mother of three, was 15 years old when she says the assaults began. Within the past two weeks, Den Hollander became the last of more than 150 survivors to share her impact statement in court with Nasser, who was convicted and sentenced to up to 175 years in prison. Den Hollander said in her impact statement to Nasser, quote, I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Den Hollander's response is excellent when she was asked, what does it mean to you that you forgive Larry Nasser?" She said, it means that I trust in God's justice. And I release bitterness and anger and a desire for personal vengeance. Let me, let me repeat that. What does it mean for you to forgive Larry Nasser? It means that I trust in God's justice. And I release bitterness and anger and a desire for personal vengeance. It does not mean that I minimize or mitigate or excuse what he has done. It does not mean that I pursue justice on earth any less zealously. It simply means that I release personal vengeance against him and I trust God's justice, whether he chooses to meet that out purely, eternally, or both in heaven and on earth. As we wait for Christ's return, we don't want to remove the real tension between good and evil, between unrelenting justice and mercy between soul-crushing guilt, as she says, and forgiveness. That tension has to stand or you end up preaching wrong theology. You preach a sloppy grace or an easy believism, which does not project the goodness of God. See, we have hope that a new tear-free, grief-free, pain-free creation will be established. Listen to Paul's words in Romans 8, for in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Six trumpets have sounded. Now the seventh is blown. God's story of redemption is still unfolding. And this story does not gloss over evil. It does not make light of sin, it does not sideline justice, and it does not ignore penalty for crimes. Matter of fact, this story has everything to do with evil and sin and holiness and justice and judgment. Everything to do with that. 
Look at verse 15. The trumpet is blown and voices are raised. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. The trumpet is blown, voices are raised in worship, the king is identified and the duration of his reign is announced. Look at this, he says, the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. This echoes Psalm 2 verse 2. So you have these, it seems like, two people next to each other of the Lord and of His Christ. And in Psalm 2 where the nations rage and they plot to challenge God Almighty and His choice King, it says this, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. This is Psalm 2 verse 2. And listen to this phrase, Against the Lord and against His anointed. That word anointed is Mashiach, Messiah. The New Testament version of that is Christ. Here you have these peoples raging against the Lord and against His Christ. That's exactly what the elders are crying out and saying. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. The time of resistance and rebellion is now over. Psalm 2 saw that. It looked into the future and saw that reality Matter of fact, listen to the warning in Psalm 2. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. And that idea of kiss is to draw near and to bow down and worship or even to to kiss like that signet ring that a king would often wear. You, you better now draw near to him. I mean, you're plotting and you're raging, but I'm going to give you an exhortation. Bow down and worship him now. Why? The psalmist says, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Well, what does an appropriate response to the Lord and his Christ look like? Look at verse 16. This is the response to Christ's enthronement. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. Now, their worship has substance. Look at what they say. And it's very interesting that they start with thanksgiving. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged. And for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great. And for destroying the destroyers of the earth. And this is the scene that John sees in heaven. You have... You have 24 elders on thrones. They're already in an exalted position. And when the Lord and His Christ arise and take the kingdom and begin to reign, they stand up and they fall down and they worship. Reverence is a healthy fear. Reverence is a deep respect. Reverence is a high estimation. Reverence, even 
by many Christians has been tossed in the ditches and it has been exchanged for novelty and relevance. So reverence is, reverence is no longer necessary in these places as long as we are relevant, as long as we offer a good ministry package, as long as the people leave feeling good. But this is not happening in heaven. This is not happening among those who have seen His glory and His righteousness. This is not happening. Reverence is never tossed aside when people have been in the very presence of God. It is natural. They stand up, they fall down, and they thank Him. Reverence is lost when our view of God is low. Reverence goes missing when our view of sin is low. Reverence is missing when we use God's name in a casual or sarcastic way. We laugh at jokes made about God. We are more concerned about our image than God's. We are more hurt when our name is disrespected than God's name is disrespected. We find it easier to go listen to two hours of a Christian comedian than we find it for ten hours to fall on our face and pray. This is an incredible scene, folks, and I don't want to miss the deliberate posture of the elders. The Christ is there and they fall down and they worship. And they worship God for who he is and for what he has done. Look at this. The 24 elders worship God. This is the substance. They worshiped God saying, first of all, for who he is. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty. There is one who is all powerful. One whose power is uncontested, unrivaled. And the world's raged and the people's plotted in vain. And the Lord laughed and he held them in derision because there is one true almighty God. And they thank him for who he is. They also say this about who he is. We give thanks saying well, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. Okay, who is presently who you are, who you were. And so often, and we had talked about this on Wednesday as we looked at this passage, we're used to hearing what? Who was and who is and who is to come. What's missing? The is to come. Why is that missing? Because everything future is now being realized. The is to come is now present and they fall down. And when that happens, when what Jesus inaugurated is now fulfilled, they say that we worship you. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. So Jesus rightly said in John eight fifty eight, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He's the eternal son. He says this in John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen who? has seen the Father who was and who is, and it stops because the is to come is now fully realized. But they not only worship God for who He is, they worship Him for what He has done. Look at verse 17. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Now, this is still future. The world is not yet as it should be. And God will right all wrongs. 
and they worship him for becoming this unrivaled king who begins to reign. They also worship him for judgment. Look at verse 18. The nations raged, but what? But you love them. God does love the world. But what are they worshiping God for? What, re, what, what divine response are these elders worshiping God for? The nations raged and your wrath came. Rage meets rage. Wrath meets rash. The punishment fits the crime. It took 18 years for Nasser to be convicted. Den Hollander was asked, what have the past two decades been like for your faith? She's a conservative, evangelical believer. She responded, I worked to get to a place where I could trust in his, in God's justice, and call evil what it was, because God is good and holy. Then she went on to explain how we, the church, tend to gloss over suffering, especially this kind of abuse where we use, quote, Christian platitudes like God works all things together for good or God is sovereign. Those are very good and glorious biblical truths, she says. But when they are misapplied in a way to dampen the horror of evil, they ultimately dampen the goodness of God. Goodness and darkness exist as opposites. If we pretend that the darkness isn't dark, it dampens the beauty of the light. So in Revelation eleven eighteen, the elders worship God because the fury of divine wrath meets the fury of men. And only one of those is almighty. And that's what they are worshiping him for. Easy believism, sloppy grace, decisionism. Did you say the prayer? Or overlooking true crimes because they said the prayer again because they didn't mean it the first time. Folks, that does not project an accurate picture of who our God is. Those who do not repent will be met with the fury of God's overwhelming wrath. Look at verse 18. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged. I don't think there are many hymns that like include this kind of thought that we're singing I know there aren't many modern hymns that include this kind of topic for worship. Den Hollander said, I found it very interesting, to be honest, that every single Christian publication or speaker that has mentioned my statement has only ever focused on the aspect of forgiveness. We have a situation that touched our family very closely, and when we first tried to tell the church... The first thing out of the mouth with this little scowl was, well, are you going to forgive him? Nothing about the crime, nothing about the hurt. Were you going to forgive him? That happened right there. They only ever focus on the aspect of forgiveness. Very few, if any of them, have recognized what else came with that statement, which was a swift and intentional pursuit of God's justice. Both of those are biblical concepts. Both of those represent Christ. We do not do well when we focus on only one of them. 
So we rejoice that wrath meets wrath for those who do not repent. And we rejoice in divine grace who forgives the worst of criminals because it is divine grace. Both sides. Justice mixed with mercy. There's the good side. He rewards his servants. So you have the, the dead to be judged And there's a time for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name. Basically, all of those who have believed you're going to reward both small and great. Those who are well known, those who aren't well known, those who have made something of themselves, those you've never heard of. They will all be rewarded because God sees everything. You don't have to promote your own goodness or your own works because God sees everything. If I fail to affirm you in a ministry here, it is not because I do not care. It's probably because I'm just not aware of it. God sees your service. And for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, Jesus says this at the very last chapter of the very last book, in Revelation 22, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me, to repay each one for what he has done. That's why after this glorious chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection, he says, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Why? Because Jesus is not only coming to judge the dead, he is coming to reward those who have faithfully followed him. And then he kind of completes in a chiastic structure which returns to the original thought He says, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Again, we return to a point that was already made. The punishment fits the crime. Listen to what Jesus taught in Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, when he will sit on his glorious throne, before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people. People. He'll separate them one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now have this image in your mind. Jesus is sitting up there on the Mount of Olives. He's overlooking Jerusalem. He's overlooking the temple. And he's talking to these people who are very familiar with this metaphor. When the Son of Man comes, he's going to separate people into two groups. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those, he's a king. He will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. What was the difference? What's the difference between a sheep and a goat when you're talking about people? The sheep have trusted in a Messiah, in the Christ, who became a curse for us. We let him be the curse. So that the curse does not fall on us. We let him absorb the wrath of God so that the wrath of God does not fall on our head. The goat said, we're fine. We don't need your help. 
Haven't we prophesied in your name? Haven't we done many wonderful works in your name? And I will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. So if there is no substitute for the curse, and they say, we're fine, we're going to get on okay, then they take the curse. Depart from me, you cursed. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. To me, that is a beautiful statement. He talks about his future reign. He talks about dividing of the the peoples. He talks about those who are sheep and going into a kingdom And there are these who are cursed and going off. And then he goes forward, obedient to the Father's will, to die on the cross for our sin. Jesus was crucified. The Prince of Life was killed. But three days later, he rose from the dead, conquering the grave and conquering Satan. He ascended to the Father where he is waiting for his enemies to become his footstool. That is a New Testament teaching. And he is waiting for the appointed time where he will return. And when he does, this is the picture of what happens. Now, look at verse 19, because when he returns, mysteries and hidden things are unveiled. Look at Revelation eleven nineteen. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. God's presence, which had once been veiled is now accessible. It's now seen. You saw a shadow of that when Jesus died on the cross. Remember the miracles that surrounded the crucifixion. And one of those was the renting or the tearing of the veil within the temple from top to bottom, meaning no man did it. That was a supernatural act. And what had been restricted is now open. That now also is fully realized. What Jesus had inaugurated is now seen and fully understood. And it seems as though there's this celebration of created power, flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Similar things that happened during the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. That's just a short little passage. And if you go back to verse 16, you'll understand again this picture. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. So as we move to celebrate the Lord's Supper, how should we respond to this text? How do we respond to God's word? The trumpet is blown, voices are raised in worship, and the rebellion ends. And we're about to lift two different emblems to our lips. One that symbolizes broken body, and one that symbolizes shed blood. And as we do this this morning, one of the great themes that comes out of this little section is that God reigns. And he will be glorified. Matter of fact, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. 
Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. God reigns. What that means is that God will right the wrongs of history. And folks, let's be honest. We rejoice when a serial predator is caught. And we feel the pain of the survivors. And one day, all those who seem to be getting away with it, and some of those who seem to have gotten away with it their whole life, they will either legally be declared righteous because they are in Christ, or they will be judged with the fury of God's wrath. For now, as Den Hollander said, quote, the damage of assault is extreme and it is lifelong. As much as someone forgives their abuser, as much hope as is found in the gospel, we don't get complete restoration this side of heaven. It does not happen. That's why the hope of heaven is so glorious. But the suffering here on earth is very real and it does not go away simply because you forgive and release bitterness. God reigns and the hope of heaven is glorious because it will be tear free and pain free and predator free and without any evil. God reigns. Secondly, a word about worship. Folks, we need to get to the point where our concerns about worship are not primarily style. What instruments are on the platform? How many old songs compared to how many new songs does she sing well? Does he move too much? Are, the, are some of those concerns? Yes, but they are not primary concerns. Our primary concern should be the object of worship. The object of worship is one. It is Jesus Christ. So the text, yes, must exalt Jesus Christ. And when they play skillfully, it should be done in a way to draw people's attention to Jesus Christ. And we must do so reverently. We worship God for who he is and what he has done. But it seems at some point we have allowed the object of our worship, folks, to become style. And the hardness and the callousness of our worship reflects that sometimes. We are given a glimpse into what worship looks like in Revelation. Let me just read two passages. Revelation 5. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The object of worship is clearly a person, not a thing. In Revelation 7, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We worship God for who He is and for what He has done and our primary concern is that we get the object right. And we worship him in spirit and in truth. And finally, a short word about judgment. There is hope in judgment. We are told not to avenge ourselves. You can rightfully leave that with the Lord because he is not a passive grandfather. He is the Lord God Almighty. 
And we ask with Abraham a rhetorical question. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Yes, he will. It doesn't mean we don't stand up to our accusers. It does not mean we don't encourage the maximum penalty for the crime on a human level. But it does mean we can entrust these things to the Lord God Almighty. And I think we need to remember this morning that the judgment we deserved was placed on Jesus Christ. And everyone here is no more deserving of God's grace than Larry Nasser is. And that will help you highlight grace and God's wrath being absorbed by the Son. And this is what we call the Gospel. This is good news worthy to be proclaimed throughout the world. For all have sinned, and the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And we can trust that. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, the majestic King, shall be saved. We will not promote an easy believism here. We will not promote all all you have to do is walk the aisle. We will pray as she prayed for her accuser that there will be a soul-crushing guilt upon you so that you can taste the marvelous grace of Jesus Christ by believing in Him alone. Heads bowed and eyes closed. I'm going to invite our worship team forward. We're going to sing Amazing Grace, My Chains Are Gone to highlight the beauty and the glory of God's grace in light of our sin and the judgment that we deserve. So I'm going to pause for a time of silence and then I will pray and then we will sing together as we move to the Lord's table.